Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Purpose Podcast. My name is Haas Rauscher. The goal of this podcast is to help men find and fulfill their purpose. I'm going to try to help them be good, strong leaders, good, strong men, good male role models in their communities. I'm going to do that by having conversations. I'm going to invite guests on. I'm going to ask our guests, what is your purpose? What do you think your purpose ought to be? How did you find that purpose? And what do you do every single day? How do you get up, get after it, and go and fulfill that purpose? Today, we are doing our first episode of the Purpose Podcast Book Club. I've been excited about this since I first had the idea, and I think it's going to go really well. We're reading The Comfort Crisis by Michael Easter. Uh, This is a really good book. This book put a lot of things in perspective Uh, for me. There's some things I agree with in here. There's some things I disagree with in here, and uh, I think that y'all are going to get a lot out of it if you read it well. And the point of doing the book club is to kind of help give y'all my notes and dive a little bit deeper into it, maybe show y'all what I'm doing uh, when I'm reading a book and taking notes. So, and I I don't take a lot uh, of notes, but when I do, I try to identify meaning in the notes. And that's kind of what we're going to go through here. Um, So he kind of starts off describing uh, the plane ride and just getting things started. I did note something on page five. Uh, this is where he really starts to kind of introduce the the theme of the book, the discomfort. And he really, the prep, like the, the, the point of the book is kind of encapsulated in this, in this paragraph. Uh, he starts with, but a radical new body of evidence shows that people are at their best physically harder, mentally tougher, and spiritually sounder after experiencing the same discomforts our early ancestors were exposed to every day. Scientists are finding that certain discomforts protect us from a physical and psychological problems like obesity, heart disease, cancers, uh, diabetes, depression, and anxiety, and even more fundamental issues like feeling a lack of meaning and purpose. Okay, you know I'm going to key in on that. Basically what he's saying is that um, being physically harder, mentally tougher, and doing hard things and getting uncomfortable gives people a sense of purpose, and I think that's excellent. And this is where it kind of starts to, um, this is where you could make this, you could make the case throughout the book that being uncomfortable gives people a sense of purpose and he doesn't take that route he gives you a a whole a whole lot more uh benefits for getting uncomfortable and he goes through all of those uh through it's kind of designed through this uh this adventure of a hunt that he did um but that's where i really keyed in on that especially the second time that he identified that as uh giving people a sense of purpose um so the, um, let's see, the next note I have on there is going to be page eight. So he just, he starts going through his, uh, struggles with alcohol abuse and, uh, you know, it's, it's really important that, uh, we understand where he's coming from here, that he's coming from an addiction, alcohol, you know, being an alcoholic is an addiction. And I've got underlined, double underlined here that nearly everything in my life deferred to alcohol on page nine, this, this second paragraph, uh, he says nearly everything in my life deferred to alcohol. And then I, uh, underlined and circled alcohol was my comfort blanket. And, the conclusion that I kind of drew from that whole that whole page and, and his whole talking about alcohol was that, you know, he found comfort in his addiction. And I that's basically what that's saying is that 
comfort is an addiction. If an addiction can give you comfort, then I think comfort can be an addiction. If you go to the addiction to find comfort, then you're going to be willing to uh, continually to do the kind of the definition of a, of an addiction is that you're willing to sacrifice every piece of yourself in order to get that addiction, in order to get that alcohol, in order to get that weed, that meth. And people say weed's not addictive. It is. (laughs) I know plenty of people that are addicted to it, but, um, that food, that gambling, whatever it is that you're addicted to, you're willing to ruin your life over it because it has such a hold on you. And I wrote down in here and something that I do is I keep a notebook with notes in it that ties back to the, to the pages because my handwriting is dog shit anyway, and there's not much room on here. So I keep a little right in the rain that, uh, I, I put notes in and I've got in here that comfort is an addiction and addiction steals our sense of self and our desires. It takes the over. So you have, when you're clean, when you're just living like a good, you know, healthy human being, you have a sense of self and you have desires that you want to chase after and that you know are good for you. And what addiction does is it comes and it steals those. It takes your sense of self away. It says, no, you're not a sovereign individual. What you are is you are my slave. That's what addiction does. And it takes all those desires that you had and it shoves them into the trash can and says, you don't know, you don't want these anymore. What you want is you want me. And that's why addiction is so bad. And that's easy to identify. A lot of people know what addiction looks like. Um, but I think where people get, when you talk with people about getting uncomfortable and you say, Hey, go get uncomfortable. You know, comfort is bad for us. We don't need all this comfort. They don't identify that because the effects aren't number one. The effects aren't immediate. Uh, it's going to take a lot longer for comfort to ruin your life than meth. Uh, (laughs) um, pretty much just like basic comfort that what he's going to be talking about here, air conditioning, um, being lazy, all of those things, but it's still an addiction. And I think what really helped me break the cycle of comfort and constantly being comfortable was viewing it through that lens of addiction and it's stealing my sense of self and my desires. It, it's stealing my sovereignty as an individual and saying, no, you don't want that. This is who we are now. You're a slave to me. And comfort did that for me. And I, I think once we switch our mentality from comfort is a thing to okay, you know, comfort is, uh, is never a bad thing to comfort can be an addictive substance that will ruin your life, just like alcohol. Then, uh, then I think that's where we really can break those ties and, uh, get uncomfortable out of spite for comfort. Uh, that's, that's at least what I do. And that's why I really liked that he, uh, obviously he's sharing his addiction with you, but, um, I I like that, that kind of tie that the addiction is comfort and comfort is the addiction. And I don't know that he directly makes it in the book. Uh, I couldn't really find a spot where he directly calls, you know, comfort and addiction, but I, I think that's really, uh, to me, that's what it is. And he says down here at, towards the end of that page, comfort from alcohol was not only not only numbing me to the life I wanted to live, it was also killing me. Yeah, I mean, that's a good, that's a good little line. Um, the next notes that I have are on page 11, and I've got this bracketed. Uh, 
he, he comes to a reckoning and he says, but once I started to act on it, admitting that I don't know things and that I could use some help, I gained some peace and perspective. And I wrote down there, it's important to show, show vulnerability. So when we're trying to get better, when we're trying to fulfill our purpose, I think the, the, what must come first is to show some vulnerability, uh, to admit that you're not the best. You may not, you're not the best that you can be. Uh, it's important to do that because you can't get better without admitting that. If you constantly are walking around like you've got this stuff handled, you know what you're doing and you're the best, then you never, uh, so let me put it this way. You never have cracks to fill, you know, like you may have the cracks, but if you're refusing to look at the cracks and fill them, then they're never going to get filled. And you're always going to be a cracked and broken individual. Um, but once you show a little bit of vulnerability and say, you know, goddamn, look at all these cracks that I've got. Um, maybe I need to start filling some of these in, you know, admit that, you know, the driveway out in front of your house is a cracked up piece of shit and that it needs to be filled or redone. Uh, and then go and do that and make it look better. That's the same thing you need to be doing in your, in your life. Show some vulnerability, admit that your driveway has some cracks in it, and then we can start working on filling them. Uh, weird analogy for the driveway, but it works. So Another just cool little thing that I kind of noted in here as I was reading, uh, he says that I, to get out of myself in the next paragraph, to get out of myself, I got a dog and each morning took him to a nearby river where I felt a long forgotten peace and confidence in the 5am quiet and mist. So he kind of brushes over that. Uh, you know, he, he does it because it's sort of a, a meditation where he goes and he gets some peace and quiet and he can be with himself and his dog. But I just, I noted it that, you know, the way that he, I think held himself accountable to that, or the reason that he would do that is that he got a dog and he found a purpose. He is now, there is something in this world that is just as or more important than he is and that he is subservient to now. And no, I'm not telling you to be a servant to your dogs, but that's if you're living a service-minded lifestyle, that's that's what you are. Your purpose is to serve the dog, make sure the dog has a good life and he's a good companion for you. And so that's kind of what, uh, what he's doing right here. And I just thought that was really cool that in order to break that cycle and to find himself some peace, he found a purpose. He went and bought a purpose a dog. And I just thought that was kind of cool. Um, so that's kind of, that's kind of all I've got, uh, on that page, number page 13 or part three, he says humans evolved to seek comfort. We instinctually default to safety, shelter, warmth, extra food, and minimal effort. And that drive through nearly all of humanity was beneficial because it pushed us to survive. And so he's going to kind of go through and talk about the history of humans and why, you know, how discomfort benefited us throughout the, or I guess more how comfort benefited us throughout the, throughout history, because we were constantly seeking comfort. And I don't even know that you could even call it comfort. It was just life. Like, you know, you had to go hunt for your food (laughs) because, um, you wouldn't live after that. Like, yeah, comfort was just being sustainable for a lot of human history. Comfort was just living, not having, you know, severe life-threatening problems. That was comfort. And what you'll see him eventually get to is we're beyond that to where you could easily live to the age of 80, you know, without ever having to be uncomfortable in this world. Uh, you know, with, especially with the social welfare programs that we've got, um, you could easily, 
you know, easily live for the rest of your life without being uncomfortable. And this is like the first time in human history that we've ever actually been able to do that without like vast amount of wealth, without, you know, being in the top 1%. Now, even the average person can leave with, uh, can live without being uncomfortable. So I thought that was, uh, yeah, he, he basically goes on for a couple of pages. My next note is going to be, um, on page 21, he talks about how, uh, this guy, David Lavari comes up with a study that where, what he does is he presents, he presents these, uh, faces. He, he starts with faces and they're supposed to be in a range of extremely intimidating to not intimidating at all. And he presents, what does it say? 800 different faces to people and they have to choose whether that face is intimidating or whether it's not intimidating at all. And then he does it with ethical, uh, science or ethical, unethical science experiments. Uh, is that what he says? Research projects. Um, so what he does is eventually he starts to back down the bad things that he's presenting. So he does less and less gang members in the faces and more and more unassuming, you know, 12 year old girls or whatever that aren't intimidating at all. And then he does less and less unethical research projects like, you know, MK ultra or whatever, and then does more and more of the baking soda volcano type projects, uh, you know, uh, experiments. And so what they found is that the more they backed off the bad things, the more people looked for bad things to find. And I think this is for a couple of reasons. If I had to guess, number one, you're, you're putting people on a, a binary. Um, you're saying this is either intimidating or it's not intimidating, I think is what they did. I need to dive into the study a little bit more. Um, and I apologize for not doing that before the episode. I, I should have looked into that study a little bit more. Um, but they're giving people, it was kind of before I had this thought, I just got this thought, but they're giving people a binary of either it's unethical or ethical or intimidating or unintimidating. I feel like if you put them on a, on a one to 10 scale, his results may vary just a little bit. It wouldn't be as staunch, but you're giving people this binary. And so as they get, as they get further and further into, um, into the experiment, and they're pulling back the bad things. They're going, hey, I've had a lot of unintimidating faces lately, and I know that we're supposed to choose between the two. I've got to start coming up with some uh, some intimidating faces, and that's what they start to do, or unethical um, science experiments. And so, I think that's part of the reason. Uh, the other the other part to what he talks about is called uh, prevalence induced concept change. He says essentially, quote unquote, problem creep. It explains that we, that as we experience fewer problems, we don't become more satisfied. We just lower our threshold for what we consider a problem. So basically he's saying that as we, you know, as fewer problems come up, we're never satisfied. We're just lowering the bar for what it takes to be a problem. And I think that is a very, I mean, that's obviously very valid. Um, and that's kind of what they're doing. I think in that in that study, just my my intuition says that it was more the pressure to find a problem, uh, not necessarily the tendency to just lower the bar to find a problem. That people want to find a problem. It was almost like, hey, you're supposed to find a problem. I think in that study, uh, I don't know. I, I'll have to look into it more and and see at that. But I just had that kind of thought right now as I'm talking about it that maybe 
it's less of, oh, people want to find a problem and more people are told, hey, you're supposed to find a problem. Um, I think that has to do a little bit with it. But he is also right that first world problems do exist. As our problems get lesser and lesser, our bar for what is a problem starts to lower. And you've all noticed this. You know, imagine, let me put for example, um, a perfect example is like the space in a house. I lived in a one bedroom apartment for what, damn near two years, I think. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe we had two Christmases there. I don't know. It was at least a year. Um, I think it was damn near two years in an apartment, a one bedroom apartment with DLN and two dogs. And we didn't have hardly any space at all. And we kept saying, oh man, once we get a house, once we get a house, we're going to have so much space. We're going to be able to do so much, you know, so much stuff. We'll have all this stuff and, you know, we'll have so much space. We'll never know what to do with the space. We'll give it, you know, six fucking months in our new three bedroom house with a yard and a shed and all that stuff. And we just get more and more shit. And then now uh, we feel like we're out of space in this small house because we've only got like what, 1200 square feet or something like that. Um, that's kind of how it works is that you start to fill your life up more and then, you know, the problems start to creep up, creep up again. It's like, oh man, this really doesn't have much space. We're not, I mean, yeah, we're satisfied with the space we had in reference to the apartment, but now we're like, damn it, we need more space. Um, that, that is problem creep. And one thing that really kind of hit me like a ton of bricks, uh, when I was reading this and it's because I'm so involved in like engineering and business management was, uh, what is the difference between problem creep and continuous improvement? Because I've always been preached to that. Hey, continuous improvement is, is what we need to be striving for. We never need to settle. And I've said that multiple times, I think on this podcast, never settle. Um, and that is correct. And so I started, I didn't want to be a hypocrite. Y'all know me. I'm a consistent person. I'm not a hypocrite. I don't ever want to be a hypocrite or let me put it this way. I I don't ever want to be a hypocrite. I'm a hypocrite sometimes, but as soon as I started thinking that, oh, I live a life of continuous improvement, then what's the difference between that and problem creep? And I think that answer is twofold. I think that there's two different reasons, uh, for problem creep being different than continuous improvement. And the first one is going to be a glass half full or glass half empty, uh, mindset. So when you go into a business and they're preaching a continuous improvement mindset, a continuous improvement way of doing business, that is a positive. What they're saying is that we continually want to get better. We want to get better. So what we're going to do, the way we're going to do that is by solving problems and making things easier and finding better ways to do business. That's a positive outlook. Whereas let's take first world Becky, who just got back from her sorority and, you know, is constantly bitching and moaning about the things at home and constantly has first world problems that she doesn't get to, she doesn't have enough things to go do. She doesn't have enough friends is what she did in college. You know, you all know what I'm talking about. First world problems. Okay. Her Starbucks wasn't warm enough this morning. Oh my God. Okay. So those are two different modes of, of the same thing of never settling and constantly raising the bar. Those are two different modes. One's a negative and one's a positive. And I think you need to remain in that positive atmosphere. And he doesn't really, he doesn't really acknowledge that. I don't think, um, Let's see, this is great. Oh, yeah, I put on there, uh, it goes into page 22. And the other part of this is, let's see, he, he says, he says, so Lavari got to the heart of why many people can find an issue in nearly any situation, no matter how good we can have it relative to the grand sweep of humanity. We are always moving the goalpost. This is quite literally a scientific basis for first world problems. I think 
or I in brackets for some reason, I think this is a low level failure of human or low level feature of human psychology. Lavari said the human brain is likely evolved to make these relative comparisons because doing so uses far less brain power than remembering every instance of a situation you've seen or been in. This brain mechanism in early humans allowed us to make quick decisions and safely navigate our environments, but applied to today's world as People make all these relative judgments, Lavari said, they become less and less satisfied than they used to be with the same thing. And he goes, this creep phenomenon applies directly to how we relate to comfort, said Lavari. Call it comfort creep. When a new comfort is introduced, we adapt to it and our old comforts become unacceptable. Today's comforts is tomorrow's discomfort. This leads to a new level of what is considered comfortable. He says stairs were once marvel of efficiency. We can simple cabin. What's more, new comforts. Okay. Yeah. So... Um, he says, so what would happen if we could dissolve our surrounding shades of gray and become aware of comfort creep? I don't think comfort creep is a bad thing as long as, like I said, it's viewed through a positive lens. And then it says, this is a, yeah, I put note, uh, put, put a note down there and it says, this is a great thing if exercised through discomfort. That's the second part of why uh, problem creep and comfort creep is different than continuous improvement is because you're looking for discomfort to make things better. So this part of, of psychology is good. And I don't think that he acknowledges that kind of well enough is that it's the same thing as when people say, be better than what you were yesterday. Like you're not fighting, um, you're not fighting somebody else. You're not fighting, uh, you know, the, a dude 20 years from now, you're not fighting your Instagram model that you want to be just like, what you're doing is you're fighting yourself from yesterday and you're trying to be better than him. That is what they're, what they're seeing here is this, this referential point of view of a referential point of standards of saying, Hey, uh, we're going to do this in relevance to, uh, such a short period of time. We're going to measure our success or our comfort based on what happened a week ago, not 2000 years ago that is a good thing that is what you want but you want to exercise that through discomfort you want to do it in a positive mindset through discomfort and say I'm going to get comfortable so that my standard yesterday is higher than or my, uh, my standard today is higher than the one I had yesterday and I don't feel like he does a good enough point at at, at uh, demonstrating that. And so I really wanted to get some notes on that and saying, Hey, look, he has a valid point that this does happen, but if used in the correct fashion, it can absolutely improve your life and, and allow you to get more uncomfortable and be a better human being. And so I think that's, that's essential. Uh, page 21 and page 22, read that and understand how it can be of benefit to you, not just a drag. Um, so that was a big part in this first little section that I wanted to hit on. Um, so my next note is going to be on page 40, 40, um, page 40. Let's see. Got that Glock 40. Um, here we go. Oh, so he's talking about Misogi. Sorry, I had to flip to my page. He's talking about Misogi's and Misogi's. He explains it. They're really hard challenges that, um, basically, reset your uh <laughs> reset your basis for discomfort and allow you to get in sort of a meditative I don't know if you would exactly call it flow state um but allow you to get in, into a sort of flow state of meditation on discomfort and they're really good from what it sounds like I've never done a true misogi like what he's talking about but on page 40 
He says, Miss uh, can show that you had. Oh yeah, sorry, Miss can show that you. Sorry, I'm dyslexic. Miss uh, <laughs> can show you that you had this latent potential you didn't realize, and that you can go further than you ever believed. When you put yourself in a challenging environment where you have a good chance of failing, lots of fears fade and things start moving. I'm going to read that again because I failed <laughs> on the first part. Misogis can show you that you had this latent potential you didn't realize and that you can go farther than you ever believed. When you put yourself in a challenging environment where you have a good chance of failing, lots of fears fade and things start moving. So... Basically, uh, I really want to key in on that first uh, sentence. Misogis show you that you had this latent potential you didn't realize and that you can go further than you ever believed. So basically what he's saying is when you lay out something that you're not 100% sure that you can do and you do it, it gives you a baseline and a sense of confidence to keep moving forward and doing hard things. And this is something that I use all the time. Uh, so let's take my CrossFit for an example. And I know y'all are tired of hearing about CrossFit, but it's whatever. Um, this is, it, it really is the, the hardest things I do. You can go in and lift and not make it anywhere near hard enough. And CrossFit forces me to do hard things. And, you know, when I started doing CrossFit, a lot of things that were hard then are not hard now. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're still tough, but, uh, my baseline has grown so much. And let's take like the assault bike for an example. Y'all know what an assault bike is. It's where you move your feet and your arms at the same time. They call it the devil's tricycle. I fucking love the thing. I honestly, I love assault bike workouts. Um, but you know, it was hard for me to even do 12 calories on the assault bike. When I walked in, if I even touched the assault bike, I hated it because it was so hard. And I, what I did is I would set out, I would get on the assault bike and say, you know what? I don't know if you can do this or not, but we're going to hit 20 calories and we're going to see if we can do it. Uh, you're probably going to fail, but, uh, no, fuck that. We're going to do it. We're going to hit 20 calories today. Let's see what you're made of. And I would go and I would smash out 20 calories and I'm like, Oh my God, that is more than I've ever done in the world. And so now when we get into a workout and I've got to do 24 calories on a workout and I'm exhausted and it's tough. I remember that time, you know, six months ago when I was much less of an athlete than what I am now and say, dude, you did 20 calories. Then if you can do that, you can do this. And that's kind of what Misogis give you. By doing like a yearly Misogi, anytime you get into a hard point in life, you look back at that and you say, hey, look, if I can do that, I know I can do this. I know I've proven myself, uh, I've proven myself to myself that I can do this. And I want you to think about it in terms of, uh, say your friends, say other people that are like trying to give you advice or, uh, say somebody wants to, this is going to be kind of a dumb analogy, but say somebody that you just met wants to borrow your truck. You're going to say no, because <laughs> you've never met them. You don't know if they can drive. You don't know if they're just going to steal it. But once you've got a friend that has proven himself that he can handle the responsibility of driving your truck, then maybe you say, okay, yeah, borrow my truck. That's fine. Um, the problem is we trust ourselves the least because we know when we lie to ourselves, you don't know when your friend lies to you. You don't know when your friend lies to you and says, Oh yeah, I, uh, you know, I did this and I, and he didn't do that. Or, you know, 
Um, you don't know. The point is you don't know when your friend lies to you, but you know, every time you lie to yourself, it is the hardest to trust yourself. And what this does by forcing yourself to do hard things and follow up on the commitments that you've made, you're building a trust bank with yourself saying that giving yourself confidence in yourself, you've proven yourself to yourself. And I think that's incredibly important because you're no longer going to self-sabotage because when you're doing hard things for the first few times, sorry, uh, burped a little bit. Uh, when you're doing hard things for the first few times, you you self-sabotage because you know that you're a piece of shit. <laughs> you know that you set out to do hard things a million times before and you've never followed through. But once you start to follow through and build that momentum, you prove yourself to yourself. And that's what this does. And I use that in my life all the time. Every time we go into a, a really bad CrossFit workout, I think about that time a week ago, you know, since I've been only doing like CrossFit once a week now. But, uh, you know, I think about that time a week ago when I was busting ass on an assault bike. And uh, I think to myself, hey, man, I did that. I know I can do this. If I did that, I know for a fact I can do this. And that's what you do. And that's how you continually get better and continually do harder and harder things. So I really like that point on page 40. Um, let's see. So next note is going to be page 65. Let me flip over to that. Uh, let's see. 59, 61, 66, 65. Yeah, it's going to be uh, this uh, part. I don't know if it's considered a chapter or um, the structure of the book is kind of weird. He's got like multiple parts and then like chapters within the part. Um, let's see what he actually calls them. Yeah, so he's got part one and then rule one, and then uh, he goes into uh, multiple different parts of that rule. It's kind of an odd layout for a book. Uh, but anyway, we're on number eight, 150 people, page 65. And he talks about um, a little bit about the trip, and then he gets into uh, that people don't really like living in big groups and that it's kind of depressing. Like living in New York City is depressing for a lot of people, especially in the fucking state that New York City is in right now when it's not, uh, you know, a mecca of ideas and new happening bustling things it's a rat haven and you know a violence a den of violence it's depressing to live amongst that many people with that level of population density and so he gets into um he gets into so right here on page 67 he says the notion that cities depress us is backed by numbers people who live in cities are 21 percent more likely to suffer from anxiety and 39 percent more likely to suffer from depression than people who live in in rural areas Two phenomena help explain the city-slash-country happiness. The first is a rather curious number, 150. Consider the following set of figures. 148.4, 150, 150 to 200, 125. It says those numbers represent the population averages of hunter-gatherer tribes, Stone Age groups, villages in ancient uh, Mesopotamia, and ancient Roman military legions. A group of roughly 150 people or fewer seems to be an ideal community it even has a name, uh, Dunbar's number, after British anthropologist Robin Dunbar, who discovered it. As we evolved, groups of fewer than 150 people gave us resources to hunt, raise kids, share, and thrive. And I think that number might be growing a little bit. He talks about that like an ancient number. Um, I would say that you know towns of a couple thousand are, are really that strong point of, of how to build a good very strong community, uh, you know, living in towns of 2,000 or 3,000 uh, is really, really beneficial. And 
that's what he's saying is that in these smaller groups, people get more benefit out of that. And what I really wanted to note here is that, uh, yeah, he kind of explains it, but, uh, he does it in a, in a realm of like pop, uh, population density. And, uh, but what I wanted to kind of, uh, put out there and, and, reflecting on this is that the reason those small communities do so well for people and their happiness, I think is because they find a sense of purpose in that community. If you're looking at a group of 150 people, especially, um, you know, every one of those 150 people, you know, when I worked at Pantex, I worked with 3000 people. There were fuckers I would see every single day that I never knew. I never knew them, never had a clue what their name was, and I never would know them. You could work there for 40 years and not know everybody. Uh, when I work at my group of 40 people, I know every single person. Every single person that works for us, I know them by name, and I know who they are, and I know where they fit in the org chart. I know what they do, I know what why they're doing it, and I know what benefit I provide to them, and I know what benefit they provide to me. Uh, this is easy to do in a community of two or 3,000 people. You can get to know most everybody in a community of two to 3,000 people, say a town like, I don't even know what uh, population Panhandle, Texas has, but it's a, it's a small community. You know, we knew damn near everybody that lived in Panhandle. Um, and if we didn't know them, then we knew their kin. Uh, we knew who they were related to. And what that does is when you all come together as a community, we all know who the best farmer was, who the best baker was, who sprayed crops, who welded, who did all of these things, who the cops were. And what it does is it gives you a sense of purpose in that community and it gives you a reason to be engaged in the community. Number one, it holds you accountable because if you do some stupid shit in a small town, it travels fast. What is it? Bad gas travels fast. That is a true statement. Okay. Number one, it gives you a reason to be accountable. Number two, it gives you a sense of purpose to that community. When you're showing up every Friday night at the football game and you're the mom who cheers the loudest and everybody tells you how awesome it is because you brought your annoying ass propane can full of ball bearings out there and you're cheering the loudest and the kids can hear you on the football field, then you're going to show up to every football game. You're going to do that um, because you have a purpose at that football game. Um, that's, that's what it does living in a smaller community and you can develop smaller communities in a town, like let's say Amarillo, where I live, my CrossFit community. I know what my position is in the CrossFit community. I can, I can identify my group inside the CrossFit community and know that maybe I'm the comedic, you know, the, the, the class clown in the CrossFit community. Maybe I say things to break up the tension or maybe I bring the intensity. Maybe there's times that I get vocal and bring the intensity, um, you find your place in the community and it gives you a purpose. It gives you a reason to show up. You're now indebted to them to show up and play your role in the community. If you're alone in, and I think this could be as small as the family, um, you know, you can create a family of four and have this same reaction. But I, I do think that there is a sweet spot of kind of like he said, 150 of close community members that you can really, really, find a purpose in and, and better your life off of that. And, you know, I don't know that this really has a whole lot to do with discomfort, but I do think it's a, it's an important note that, uh, you know, if you live in a big city and you're kind of depressed and you're not feeling very good, you need to get out of there, man. You need to get to somewhere smaller. You need to get to somewhere that is, uh, somewhere where you can find a little bit of a purpose and build a community or, or you need to find a community in that city. You need to go to church. You need to go to a, a group class gym. Don't go to the gym where everybody's got their headphones in their ears and nobody wants to fucking talk to you. Go to a CrossFit gym and yeah, it's a cult. Yeah, sure. It's a cult. Okay. But if you go to church, you have no, you have no place to talk. Um, 
So go to a CrossFit gym and get plugged into that community. I promise they're probably good people. Um, at least the one, the people in my gym are awesome. Okay, get plugged into that community, find your purpose in that community, and start to build on that and use that as a, a reason to go and get uncomfortable and to build a better life. So basically, that, that kind of leads us right into page 70, which is exactly where you should be at right now. You should be uh, today... You should have read 70 pages by now. Keep reading at a pace of 10 pages per day. Guys, please don't put this down. Please keep reading the book. Stay diligent. Use unmitigated daily discipline. I think that's a Jocko principle. I don't know who said it, but unmitigated daily discipline and get your pages in and read this stuff. I promise you that even if you think that this book doesn't have that whole lot to offer, you will find things in there. I think it does. But even if you've read the 70 pages and you're like, this is not going to be worth it, I promise it'll be worth it. And I I promise you'll get things out of it, especially if you're listening to my notes on it. I think I've got some things that will really help y'all get more out of this book and make it worth your time. So please do not stop. Please don't stop. Please keep reading. Uh, Guys, I do want some input on what you think the next book ought to be. Um, I've got some ideas, but I really want to hear what you think. I want to hear questions about this book. I'm going to put out a QA and a for, hey, uh, what what questions do you have on the comfort crisis? What do you want to hear me talk about in the comfort crisis so far? Uh, You know, or the next few pages. What are you looking forward to hear from the comfort crisis? Uh, I may put that out uh, maybe on like Sunday uh, so that you can kind of get halfway into these pages and we'll see. So, but anyway, guys, I really appreciate your help. I really appreciate you listening to this and uh, stop back in on Sunday. We're going to have a really, really cool guest in that I'm really excited to hear about. It's going to be a new guest. It's going to be a guest that I'm not already friends with. And uh, I I think it's going to be really awesome and give you all some good content. So tune in on Sunday, uh, be listening to the podcast, please share the podcast guys. If if you believe in my mission and you believe what I'm trying to do here, uh, share the podcast. And if, if you, if you have a reason not to share it, let me know that reason so that maybe I can fix it. If you say, Oh, well, the audio quality is uh, just not good enough or whatever then, or, you know, I didn't like that. He said that, well then let's talk about it and let's, I, I want to spread the word. And so if, if it, what it takes for you to spread the word is to rectify something that you don't really like, then let's talk about it. The podcast is small enough now to where the, the listeners can ha- can influence uh, what I'm trying to do right now. And uh, I really need to get the word out to, to get it to more people. And it was actually uh, pretty cool. I don't know who, uh, it, it, it's kind of wild. I don't know how it found it to this kid, but, uh, DL and working with some of the, uh, you know, the underprivileged kids at the shelter, she actually had some kids come into the shelter a couple weeks ago and she turned my podcast on cause she listens to them. Like she's an amazing wife that she supports me. I don't know how she can stand the sound of my voice, but, uh, she does. <laughs> so she had turned it on and she was listening to it. And one of the kids actually said, Hey, I, I heard this guy, um, back in like September. And unfortunately he's in a position where he can't really just listen to it all the time underprivileged kids again, but, um, it, it is getting out there and it's getting out here in local, in the community. I think it's doing a lot of good. Uh, I, and I think it would do a lot of good, but I need y'all to share it. I need y'all to help me tell me what I can do to improve. So that's all I've got for you guys. Tune in on Sunday. Thanks.